You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog of politics and logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. Here he is, author of the book, Progress, Really? U.S. Navy veteran and your host, Peter Seraphine. Welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse, my fellow patriots and freedom fighters. This is the Liberty Lighthouse for Friday, July 17th, 2020. First half, we've got, well, me complaining, mostly. I'm just fed up with so many things, I'm just going to vent for the first half of the show. But fear not, my friends, the second half of the show, I have a guest. I have Jim Muscara, a, uh, well, a very successful author of both fiction and nonfiction, which I find interesting because it's a very different skill set for both of those and uh, he uh, he also came from uh, the financial world and then became author that's just weird and he's an interesting guy i enjoyed the conversation i hope you enjoy it too but well let's just uh, jump in and get started welcome to the liberty lighthouse with your liberty lighthouse keeper your beacon of common sense your wiki if you will peter seraphine we urge you to join the conversation by calling 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. And sign up to be a member at liberty-lighthouse.com. That's right. Call or text the Liberty Lighthouse at my rights. Love your questions, comments, and concerns. You can also join the chat room. Join the group over on the MeWe social media platform. Got a chat room going there. Uh, and even though the episodes post on Friday, you can put your comments in there anytime and I'll respond. And so will other listeners. It's fun stuff. Well, here in my home state of ben- Governor Wolf, or as I like to refer to him, Dare Fuhrer Wolf has done it again. <laughs> Wolf has set off the tyranny alert. So after sending the whole state to the green reopening stage where, well, that's the closest thing to freedom we've seen in a long time, and the last step in his reopening, apparently we're never going to go beyond the green stage, never going to go back to good old-fashioned red, white, and blue liberty and independence here in the state of independence, the birthplace of liberty. Well, green wasn't, it wasn't going so well because, you know, people were, we were going out doing stuff and we weren't wearing masks and, oh my God, people are getting COVID or we're finding people with COVID or we're, we're testing more and more people have the Wuhan flu than we thought, or uh, I don't know, we have to do something. Dare Fuhrer, please, please help us. So. Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania has taken restaurants, which were at 50% occupancy. That was the green stage, 50% occupancy, again, with no plan to ever go better than green. Uh, 50% occupancy, and as of midnight Thursday morning, it became 25% occupancy for restaurants. And I'm going to get back to that in a second. I want to go over the rest of the lovely stuff of the bill the rest of the lovely stuff is 
alcohol can only be served in bars now with a meal or in takeout. So the the state-owned liquor stores, which sell liquor to go, well, they can still operate. But a bar that doesn't necessarily have a kitchen to serve a meal, well, yeah, you can't serve alcohol. And nightclubs, oh, well, nightclubs have just been completely shuttered again. So my local VFW and my local American Legion have both announced that they were closed as of midnight last night. Um, and, uh, well, I suspect that that's probably what all the bars will end up doing because most of them don't serve food. So let's go back to the restaurants for just a second. The uh, National Restaurant Association says that the average restaurant makes like 5% profit. At least when I was in the restaurant business, that's what it was. Let's Let's even pretend that it's 10%. Generous restaurants make 10% profit. That's on full capacity. That's having your dining room packed on Friday and Saturday nights or whatever your busy time is in your restaurant. And now you can only be at 25% occupancy at the most, 25%. How is that restaurant ever going to even break even? Well, they're not. And any of them that aren't backed by some big chain or an owner that just happens to have unlimited pockets, they're not going to be able to survive. It's been months and months and months. We are closing. We are killing small businesses. All right. Let's go back to the bars. You know, the American Legion has been around since 1919. And... During Prohibition, nobody dared enter an American Legion and tell those soldiers and sailors that they couldn't have a drink. Nobody dared go into a club operated by the men who had just saved the world and said, you can't have a drink. So this is my call. This is my call out to all of the veterans clubs BFWs, DAVs, American Legions, AMVETs, any of them, any of the veterans organizations anywhere in this country that is being forced to shut down or forced to limit occupancy or, you know, forced to to serve food with your meals. Do whatever you can to fight this crap. If you give away a, a bologna sandwich and a bag of chips with every drink that's ordered, hey, that's a meal. And who's to say that, you know, you, there's no rule in the governor's plan that says you have to eat the meal. It says served with the meal. So give your customer a bologna sandwich and a bag of chips and let them sit there and drink as much as they want. You know, within the legal limits, because here in Pennsylvania, it's illegal to serve a drink to anybody who's visibly intoxicated. Stupid laws that Pennsylvania has about alcohol. I could spend hours just talking about the stupid laws Pennsylvania has. Anyway. My fellow veterans, go to your veterans organizations and stand up to this. This is ridiculous. They are shutting you down. And what a lot of people don't realize, if you don't belong to any of these veterans organizations, that little bar down the street that has the American Legion sign in front of it or the VFW sign or whatever, that's not just a place where old 
old soldiers and sailors and airmen and marine and cranky old men and women go to sit and have a drink. That's how they earn money to give back to your community. They are charitable organizations who donate more money than you can possibly imagine back to your community. But here in Pennsylvania, your governor has decided that you can't do that because, you know, we're not wearing masks or whatever. Even before this, the last round in the green phase, you weren't allowed to stand at a bar and have a drink. You could sit at a bar and have a drink, but you couldn't stand because the virus is intelligent enough to know whether you're sitting or standing, just like it was intelligent enough to know whether you were in church or Walmart. This has gone, it's gone crazy. I can't believe more people aren't standing up and saying, this is ridiculous. There are viruses in the world all the time. There will always be another virus. There is never going to be a moment in your life when your body is not covered in viruses. Oh, but this one spread so fast. Yeah. Um, what about those ones that live on your skin all the freaking time? You don't think they spread quickly? Oh, but it's more deadly. How deadly is it? So far, it has killed 0.04% of the uh, population, both worldwide and in America. 0.04%. But yet, we're allowing our government to take tyrannical measures and crush our small businesses and mandate that you wear masks and mandate how many people can or can't be wherever because 0.04% of the people of our, our nation have died. And if you remove the ridiculous amount of those people who were already in nursing homes, already compromised, and they were forced to take positive patients into those nursing homes by these same governors that are trying to kill all of your small businesses, that 0.04% drops to almost 0.02. The number of people dying is terrible. If you're one of the 130,000 uh, people, if, if you're one of the family members of the 130,000 or so people that have died from this disease, I am sorry. It happens. And nothing I can say is going to make you feel better. But the rest of us need to move on. We need to have our lives before our government just takes over everything and we become communist China. Because we're already getting really freaking close at this point. Oh, but it'll be okay once we have a, a vaccine. Dr. Fauci and his team has been working on a vaccine for AIDS for 35 years. And AIDS is still in the top 10 killers in the world. Uh, one of the top 10 causes of death worldwide. And he's been working on a vaccine for 35 years. Are you willing to sit around with your business shuttered and wear a mask every time you go someplace? And, oh, social distancing for 35 years until somebody can come up with a vaccine? that may or may not even have an effective rate that's of any use. I'm not. I'm done. I don't care anymore. The state of Pennsylvania now says that you basically have to put a mask on your face when you walk out your front door. That's ridiculous. What makes it even more ridiculous is coming from the man that it's coming from. Dare Fuhrer, Governor Wolf. 
Sieg heil! Jawohl, der Führer! This man, three days ago, July 14th, was photographed sitting in his barber chair, surrounded by, I don't know, eight guys. None of them wearing masks. Not one single person in that photograph was wearing a mask. Then two days later, he comes up with this new restrictions and these new orders that tighten us back down. He's a hypocrite. The General Assembly has tried to work with him on several occasions in the, here in the state of Pennsylvania. They have put forth many bills for him to sign that were reopening plans, and he has vetoed every single one of them. He honestly thinks that Der Fuhrer Wolf is the one and only person who can possibly save this. And what gets me is the people that I see on social media sites that defend him. Oh, he's doing a great job. That's why we have such good, we've set such a good example here in Pennsylvania compared to the rest of the country. Yeah? Oh, it was a great example to have 69% of our people die in nursing homes because Dr. Rachel Levine forced nursing homes to take people in that had already tested positive for a disease that you didn't know anything about yet. 69 I think it's 69.8 or something like that. Percent of the death in the state of Pennsylvania are because Dr. Rachel Levine forced nursing homes to take COVID positive patients. Oh, and by the way, Dr. Rachel Levine did that after removing her own mother from a nursing home. Can you say manslaughter? Can you say depraved indifference to human life? I honestly think Dr. Rachel Levine needs to be brought up on charges, a charge of manslaughter for every person who died in a nursing home in this state. And if, uh, if need be, try every one of them separately. That's ridiculous that these governors are, and health officials are getting away with this. Was it Pennsylvania, uh, New York, and Minnesota, I think, all did the same thing. They forced assisted living facilities to take in patients that had already tested positive. And they have ridiculously high rates of, of infection and death in those nursing homes and assisted living facilities. But we're supposed to listen to their advice. If you're waiting for a vaccine, you're a freaking moron. Because there's no guarantee that there's ever going to be a vaccine. And there's no guarantee that a vaccine will even be effective. What, the, the flu, right? The flu vaccine rate? It's like, what, 30 percent's a good year if it's 30 percent effective? Yeah, but this is different. This isn't a virus that changes. Like flu, the flu, you got to figure out which one it is every year and make a vaccine for it. And then there's flu A and flu B in multiple strands. You don't think this thing's going to mutate? You don't think this virus is going to mutate? Don't all viruses mutate? There is only one way to get past a viral infection in in the world. One, herd immunity. Now, you can either get herd immunity by letting a majority of your people get the stupid virus, or you get herd immunity through a vaccine. 
Those that's it. Those are the only two ways to get to herd immunity, and herd immunity is the only solution. All we're doing by social distancing and wearing masks and 25% occupancy in restaurants and all this other crap, all we are doing is prolonging how long we have to suffer with this crap. That's it. We're stretching out the infection. The same number of people are going to get this damn disease no matter how long it takes. The goal in the beginning, the 15 days to slow the spread, was to make it so that we flatten out that curve a little bit. We gave the hospitals time to get their capacity back, stretch it out, so that all the people that were going to die didn't die at once. So what's the excuse now, five months later? What's the point now, in July? Where's the end of this thing? You know where I think the end of it is? November 3rd. That's what I think. I honestly think that the election is going to be the end of of the, the Wuhan flu epidemic. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. If Trump wins again, then they'll put the Wuhan flu on the back burner while they come up with their next whatever to attack Trump with. Their, their next propaganda machine made up, I don't even know, garbage. If Trump loses and Biden wins, then all of a sudden there's going to be a cure. Oh, wow, all of a sudden now it's not a problem anymore. Oh, 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 the infection rates are going down and the death rate's going down and Dr. Fauci has a vaccine and oh, it's all sunshine and roses again. Thank you so much, Joe Biden. Either way, Wuhan flu will be here with the election. That's if, that's if we can make it to November. It's July now. It's got three and a half months left. I don't know that we can make it three and a half more months. I don't know that we can make it three and a half more months without gunfire. Tarring and feathering and just outright revolution. This is insane. I have never been more angry with my government ever. I lived in Florida for a while when Governor Jeb Bush refused to do something that the people had voted for. In Florida, they put on the public ballot whether or not to cap schools to 30 students in a school, in a public school classroom. And it won by like, I don't know, 98% of the voters, something ridiculously high. And Governor Jeb went on shortly thereafter onto the, the news and did a press conference and says, well, the people didn't know what they were voting for. They didn't know how much it was going to cost. Uh, we, we just can't do this. Uh, Governor Jeb, the people voted based on the numbers that you and your state-run uh, university provided. So if they didn't know what it was going to cost, it is your state-run university's problem. And it's too late now because it's already been voted on. Shut up and do your job. We just told you what your job was. To limit class sizes to 30. That's why I'm done with the Bush family. And if Jeb ever gets even close to the White House, I'm leaving the country. Because anybody who's willing to stand there after after public referendum with 
that ridiculously high a support and you're going to stand there and say we didn't know what we were doing, you're not an elected official. You are not a public servant at that point. You're just there for a paycheck or for fame and fortune or God knows why, but it's obviously not to serve the people. That was the last time I really got mad at my government. Now, the Wuhan flu, that makes me think Jeb Bush could be my buddy because I was barely mad compared to what I am now. The Wuhan flu has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with by we the people. We the people need to get rid of tyrants like Der Fuhrer Wolf here in Pennsylvania and Cuomo in New York and Whitmer in Michigan who are violating their own orders and rules openly, but then demanding that you do exactly what they say. Here in Pennsylvania, again, my state of independence, the birthplace of liberty, the governor sent the the lovely state police. Well, technically, it was the, uh, the Liquor Control Board enforcement officers, because again, remember, liquor control in Pennsylvania is completely state-run. All the liquor stores are state-owned. All the liquor licenses come from the state. They have their own special judges and their own law enforcement called the Liquor Control Enforcement. But those people are actually state police. So anyway, here in Pennsylvania, just last weekend, these Liquor Control Enforcement state police went out to, you know, like, I don't remember, 3,000 licensed establishments allowed to sell alcohol and did spot checks as to whether or not they were following all the governor's social distancing rules and mask wearing rules and all that kind of stuff. And they issued 21 citations, I'm sorry, 21 warnings for locations that weren't following the rules. One of those rules, this is one of my favorites. So you walk into a table service restaurant, let's say, the Olive Garden, Ruby Tuesdays, mom and pops down the street. Doesn't matter. You walk into the place, you have to wear a mask. When you get walked to your table, you have to wear a mask. When you sit down at your table, you can take your mask off. But if you get up to go to the bathroom, you have to put your mask back on. And when you get up to leave the restaurant, you have to put the mask back on. So the virus apparently knows whether you're sitting down or standing up. Oh, that goes along with the, you can't sit at a bar, but you, I'm sorry, you can't stand at a bar, but you can sit at the bar. Wait, no, that's, that doesn't make any sense either. Is the virus really that smart there, uh, Governor Wolf, Dr. Levine? Oh my God. Governors, just let us go back about our lives. I said last week, 45% of the people in this country that have died from this virus were already in nursing homes. Protect those people. Protect the ones that have comorbidities. Protect the ones who have significant health problems. And let the rest of us go back to having a life. I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know why more people aren't standing up and screaming. We've got to do something. We should not be.
be this scared of a virus. The media, that's the real virus in all of this. The people that are constantly talking about it and pressing it and saying, ah, the rates are going up, the rates are going up, more people are getting it, more people are getting it over and over and over again. Oh my goodness. I've spent almost the entire segment just screaming about coronavirus and Wuhan flu. I am so sorry, but it really has me back upset. When we come back here in just a little bit, like I said, Jim Muscara, great guest. I hope to have him back. I really enjoyed our chat. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, We'll be back in uh, about a minute. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse. Join the conversation now. Just call 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. Are you fed up with progressive society? I'm Peter Serafine, and my frustration led me to write a short book titled Progress. Really? Progress, really, is about the past, current, and future state of American culture, government, and social standing. I urge every liberty-loving American to visit my website, seraphine.com, and order a copy. Give Progress, Really, a quick read and some serious thought. That was seraphine.com, S-E-R-E-F-I-N-E.com. Order your copy today. You are listening to the Liberty Lighthouse Podcast. Welcome back to the Liberty Lighthouse. On the line now is Jim Mascara. Jim Mascara, after getting his master's degree, worked as a commodities trader, for, a successful commodities trader for a while, has his own proprietary software that he helped design. Now he's a consultant and an author. What I find interesting is Jim is an author of both fiction and nonfiction, and that's quite difficult to uh, Two completely different skill sets there. So, welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I have you here because I wanted to talk with you about the well, the cost of regulations. And in your fiction series in particular, you, uh, well, it's almost, almost prophetic, even though it's not designed to be that way. Uh, your first one came out in 2016. And it was written for 2020, or in the time period of 2020, right? Right, yeah. The, the first book, as you mentioned, uh, I, I actually started writing before the 2016 election, uh, and it was to lay out a path for the United States as it progressed through the 2020 election, so the election yet we're still to have. Okay. And you uh, you write... In your nonfiction, or in, I'm sorry, in your fiction work, you 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 touch on the politics of it, the economy, the just the whole nation and everything about it. Yeah, one of the things I tried to do was uh, with my uh, my fictional series is try to project life in the United States, but not so much in the future to for, to where some people might consider it, you know, more science fiction or or maybe very speculative fiction. Uh, I would tell you that, and just based on reader comments, my fiction writing is very, very real. It has a very heightened sense of realism about it to such a point where, yes, it's projection, and yes, it, it makes some assumptions about the, the near future, but I would also tell you that it's based on um, a lot of historical fact where people can then project based on what's happened, what they see currently happening in the United States right now, they can envision that future. And, you know, part of that future is um, 
of, of a, a constant struggle between authoritarianism and those that favor liberty. And this that actually kind of blends back into uh, my nonfiction work, which I really have the basis of, of many of our social and economic ills is that tilt, that balance between authority and liberty that we've really gotten away from. And uh, one of the things I like to mention, and almost any time I'm, I'm um, being interviewed, is that you know, regardless of your political uh, tilt today or affiliation, the nation has drifted consistently over time. And this doesn't matter whether it's a Republican president, Democratic president, Republican Congress, Democratic Congress. This drift has occurred, and it's and it's occurred towards more authority. And um, I, I'm actually I tried to coin. I'm in the process of coining a, a phrase. I may I might do it as a trademark. And it's called freedom of versus freedom from. Do you know the difference? And my suspicion is most Americans don't really think about the difference between those two types of freedoms. And the the fact that we don't understand that has caused the drift to occur, you know, more and more towards authority. And again, this is regardless of, of whatever political party is in charge. And it's difficult to see, I think. Um, but because that drift has occurred, and, and I outline in my books why it's occurred and why it's going to continue to occur, is um, very important to understand well, some of our social and economic and financial problems that we have today. Well, I, you know, I, I'm a libertarian constitution party, somewhere in that middle ground between those parties, uh, small government kind of guy. I'm all about liberty and freedom. And I think somebody who is as far to the right as I am, I, I think it's obvious to see that drift. Um, at one point in, in here in the show, you know, months ago, I, I, uh, I coined the phrase, you know, government grows, government always grows. It doesn't matter what kind of government it is. It doesn't matter who's in charge of the government. Government at some point becomes its own living thing, and it's only concerned with power and control. That's true. And, but, but you have to ask yourself, Peter, how does, how does that power and control amass? And it amasses with two very, very important components. One is we, the people, we, the people uh, have allowed that to happen. And I say that because, you know, we elect representatives to government and we obviously elect uh, our president as well. And, you know, as a citizenry, we have, you know, we, we've, we're less um, over the course of time, we haven't been as keen to understand some of the machinations that occur in Washington, D.C. I mean, these things happen. Um, and bureaucracy gets much bigger, but nothing's really been done about it. And there's there's very little that's been done to control this expansion of government. So so part of it is you know we the people have allowed it to happen. The second part of it is um, there is no financial friction that is preventing any of that. And we can get into more detail if you want as to what I mean by that. Um, the only thing that I have seen, and I've actually incorporated uh, this kind of subplot in, in my books, my fictional books, is there's an effort that's going on right now, which is called Convention of States. And one, one of the things they're trying to do is to propose constitutional amendments um, to sort of, again, rein in the expansion of government. And I would tell you that most Americans don't even understand that whole process where, you know, uh, constitutional amendments can be proposed either through a congressional action or what's happening in this particular effort, which is um, which is state based, where you know you 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 petition the state legislatures and they say, oh yes, we want to have 
a, a convention of states, uh, you know, uh, organization uh, meeting where then we can debate these things. And then if you have to get a certain number of states to even um, have the convention, and then anything that comes out of there as a proposed constitutional amendment then has to be ratified by three-fourths of the state. So as a quick aside there, that's the only thing, the only effort that I've seen with regards to that. So there's, again, two things that have allowed this this uh, expansion to occur. And again, a lot of the social ills that you see today are as a result of that. So one is we the people, and the second is the lack of financial friction. Well, we're uh, here at the Liberty Lighthouse. I am a big supporter of the Convention of States project. I have actually pledged, should my little book ever turn a profit, I'm going to donate all the profits to the Convention of States project. Um, it is 34 states that have to call for the convention. And then anything that comes out of the convention, any suggested uh, amendments um, to even pass convention, have to have the support of 38 states. And then from there, uh, like you said, the ratification process, it still has to go back to the state legislatures in all 50 states and has to be ratified by, again, at least 38 of those states. So, yeah, the Convention of States project is probably the most effective way I see of we the people trying to gather any control over our government again. Yeah, and, and so, so and that's the that's let's let's call that the legislative side of it. The other is the um, what, what I'll call the financial friction side of it and the, the lack thereof. You know, one of the things that we have uh, going for us in the United States is that we're the world's reserve currency, and that was something that was set up uh, at the end of World War II. Um, but one of the things we don't have going uh, for us is that that uh, agreement, that monetary agreement that occurred in 1945, was uh, abandoned in 1971 by a president that is his name is associated with Watergate. But I would always uh, claim, and I've, I've said this in my book, that re really his biggest claim to fame should be the decoupling of the United States dollar from this previous agreement. Um, since that point in time, 1971, uh, you have seen measures of wealth and growth inequality diverge significantly, um, measures of debt uh, as it pertains to the United States funded and unfunded liability have absolutely exploded. And that, that's not even counting, obviously, what happened this past spring and what, what is continuing to occur. So as long as you have that mechanism where, um, to quote uh, Dick Cheney, deficits don't matter, technically they do. They don't matter right now, but they will matter. Um, and because the United States is able to use the U.S. dollar not only for their own, again, uh, funding with respect to governmental activities, um, they can also use it as a political hammer overseas. And at some point, I mean, it's, I shouldn't say at some point, it's occurring today, you know, other governments around the world don't like to get hammered over the head, uh, you know, via the geopolitics of the U.S. dollar. So what they're doing is they're trying to find ways to circumvent that. Um, in the United States and across the world, there are developments, and I, I write about some of these topics and speak about them, uh, cryptocurrencies that are being developed. Again, another topic that, not coincidentally, I also include in my fictional books um, because that is part of the future as well. What happens when the money that you use, uh, you no longer have that same confidence in that money that you once did? Um, there are, I can tell you there are significant developments going on right now in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Um, and ironically, the very first book I ever published, which was a nonfiction book in 2010, I actually talked about a little-known cryptocurrency at the time called Bitcoin. 
And I, I was mentioning it not so much from the standpoint of an investment perspective, but more from the standpoint of how significant that would be and the development of cryptocurrencies would be in disintermediating entities um, that issue their own national currency, like the U.S. dollar, the euro, you know, and, and the list goes on. And that development of cryptocurrencies, again, is, is occurring right now. Um, I, I think that governments around the world, central banks around the world are taking notice. And uh, specifically in China, you are seeing the development of a national cryptocurrency that will have its own, you know, authority implications. I, I just saw a, an ATM looking device that sold Bitcoin at a local gas station. Just, I think it was yesterday, maybe two days ago. I, I saw this thing and I thought, oh my God, I, I can't believe Bitcoin has actually become that mainstream that they have ATM machines where you can buy Bitcoin. And they've actually been around for a while. And, um, you know, there's there's a couple of different ways. You know, you can acquire Bitcoin, you know, in some sort of an exchange uh, with your national currency. That's one way. The other way is to actually earn Bitcoin. Um, you can get paid for, you know, your goods or services, you know, by somebody in. A, and I'm saying Bitcoin right now. Obviously, there's there's over well over a thousand cryptocurrencies in existence. Um, but. I would encourage people to think about um, these alternate currencies, not so much from an investment perspective, because sure, there's there's going to be um, uh, there's going to be um, capital gains, if you will, to be derived from that, and, and that certainly occurred in 2017 with Bitcoin, with it, with its dramatic price rise. But to earn money in cryptocurrencies, um, I have a, a site set up. Uh, in a on a on a web uh, location called Open Bazaar, where I have you know three of my books set up, there the fix three of my fiction books set up, where you can pay me in uh, Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, and I think even Litecoin as well. Um, so I would encourage people to think about uh, cryptocurrencies again, not so much from an investment perspective, because you know you certainly can make money if if you do if you time things correctly and and you understand what it is that you're investing in, but. Um, Look at it from the standpoint of, you know, I'm I'm getting paid for my goods and services like that. And I will also tell you, just as a quick aside, that one of the things that's been happening in the United States economy for quite a while now is what's called the velocity of money has greatly reduced. Now, what causes the velocity of money to reduce? Uh, it would be like if uh, I paid you, Peter, for something, so I gave you $100. Now, historically, if the velocity of money is uh, is operating, and again, according to historical averages, then you would take that hundred dollars. You might take some part of that, you know, go buy something. Then whoever you paid that to, and that hundred dollars or some fraction thereof keeps circulating the economy. That's not happening to the same degree as before. And um, when when and if cryptocurrencies take off as a bigger uh, mechanism. Again, as speculated in my fiction book, you'll you'll see, let's say, less of a need for that national currency, and you'll see more of the economy operating in this cryptocurrency space, which, again, I highlight that in my fiction book, where you have this alternate economy that has, has been set up in parallel to the economy that, that people see, let's say, outside of cyberspace. Well, we're... I feel that we're kind of being forced into that general direction anyway uh, by uh, by the cashless movement. No, you know, going cashless and using your debit card is not the same thing as cryptocurrency. I understand that. But to, to eliminate cash, to have 
major chain stores like Whole Foods now saying, hey, we don't really don't want your cash anymore. And I was just at a CVS pharmacy the other day that had a sign up that said, due to the national chain shortage, we prefer you use an alternate form of payment other than cash. I, I feel that's kind of pushing us in that direction to get away from cash. And uh, that, that scares me a little bit. I, I wrote an article I know, maybe two, three years ago. Um, and, you know, if your readers want to look up the article, I, I can link them to it. Uh, and I talked about your the greatest threat to your financial freedom was the name of the article. And it really had to do with the abolition of cash. Um, the abolition of cash has some very insidious um, uh, ramifications. Um, you know, you can talk about legal tender laws. Um, and again, I'm certainly no expert on that. Uh, th- there's still something that is interesting to me where, you know, if you have the legal tender of a nation and you present that for payment, and if you look at if you look at a, a U.S. dollar or other currencies, it says, you know, this is legal tender for all debts, public and private, um, that a, a merchant would be able to reject that. But again, that aside, what happens when you abolish cash? Well, you essentially trap people in the financial system. And what I mean by that is um, now you any privacy. And again, if you value your privacy, uh, any privacy that you might have had uh, using cash has been summarily uh, erased. Because now all of your transactions uh, are online, again, either with your credit card, your debit card, and so forth. Um, ironically, uh, there's a one very advanced economy in the world that still uses cash probably more than any other uh, economy, and that's Germany. Uh, and I think some of that's the legacy you know, of what happened during the Weimar Republic and, and some of the hyperinflation that they experienced. But um, the, when you eliminate cash, you know, again, you trap people within the financial system uh, privacy is eliminated. Um, the other thing that, that people <clears throat> haven't necessarily considered is in some countries around the world, there are negative interest rates, uh, which means any money that you have deposited in a, in a depository institution, you're essentially paying to have that money there uh, and not necessarily uh, you're not getting any interest in it. I mean, even the United States where you get a you know paltry interest, well, that doesn't exist. You're paying for that. Now, imagine if you were in a cashless society and all of your deposits were again were in depository institutions, and that depository institution said it's going to cost you minus one percent to have this money deposited here. Well, what that what that does, and what the monetary authorities have tried to do in some of these countries is to encourage behavior to discourage savings, and then try to plow that money back into the economy. It gets back to what I was telling you earlier about the velocity of money decreasing. Uh, significantly. Um, so that's a that's a real big danger. And that for some cryptocurrencies is uh, an appeal, if you will, as to why someone would have a cryptocurrency uh, is they sort of regain that privacy, uh, you know, in their monetary transactions. Yeah, privacy is absolutely gone. And that's the one thing that I think most people realize once they stop to look at it, that uh, the privacy, the tracking is is immediately like the Everything you spend money on can be tracked easily. That seems and, to be the and, one. You know, it, it, yeah, and, and that that and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a that's a very prevalent theme again throughout my fiction books is you know where does where, where does that balance occur between authority and liberty and and obviously you know your your financial transactions you know for some people well that should be an open book for other people no you know I I don't think that's any anyone's business that they should know what I'm doing, um, but I will tell you also that in my fictional uh, books, I 
specifically go to great lengths to balance it out from the standpoint of, you know, there are people um, that rightly want more authority, you know, and, and I've got some characters in, in the first book for sure that, you know, they came from environments that were very unstable. You know, they saw instability around them. And oftentimes a reflexive action on the part of people is, well, how do I how do I subdue that instability? Is it through more authority? Is it through more monetary control? And so you'll see that struggle. It's not, you know, I, I want to make it sure I want to make it clear to people that, you know, for some people, it's not it's not a clear answer. Oh, yes, we absolutely need to have more liberty. Uh, there are some people that uh, think quite the opposite. And, and there are some, I will tell you, very chilling scenarios that occur in, in my series that, you know, some people think, oh, you know, well, that's just something that we had to do. And other people that are just completely aghast that it that occurred. And that's, I think, very reflective of what we, we see in society today. There are some people that think, OK, well, these events that are happening, they're they're perfectly OK. Um, they're justified. And there's others that think, no, 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 they need to be subdued. And we've barely in this country, we've barely hit on some of the um, the financial ramifications of all these things that are going on. We, we, we had it some we had it very papered over in 2008 during the, the great financial crisis. Uh, we had a massive papering over um, this past spring with the uh, with the COVID pandemic and the actions that you know that state, uh, particularly federal governments, took. When that financial impact becomes uh, more pervasive as we move forward in time, you'll see even more divisions about what needs to be done. Well, yeah, there's no way we're going to have any idea how much all of the. Uh coronavirus lockdown stuff and stimulus money and all there's, there's no way we're going to have a clue as to how much that all really costs us for years. I mean, how many businesses out there are going to fail because of this? Maybe they're not going to fail tomorrow. Maybe, maybe they'll make it for another, you know, they'll limp along for a year or so, but they're going to fail because well, of losing three months worth of business. And, and not yeah, to mention and, and that, I, and I, and I work as a consultant, and, and I, I, I work with small and mid-sized businesses, so I've seen what's happened here over the course of the last few months. And, you know, the, the Paycheck Protection Plan loans that that, um, that were issued by the Small Business Administration, um, well-intended, and there's no doubt that some businesses would not be in existence today. But the, the problem that you have is this. Um, you have if if you have a business and you have capacity restrictions on that business, okay, and let's just use the restaurant as an example, um, you cannot survive at 50% capacity. No. Um, and, and, and I know that to be the case because uh, I've seen restaurants and I've seen what on what margins they operate. So if you're at 50%, it's just not going to work. Secondly, the psychology of uh, of the people right now has been greatly affected. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's say that tomorrow, you know, in whatever municipality, town, state you live in, um, the, the local authorities, the public health or elected officials say, OK, there are no capacity restrictions for absolutely anything. You still have uh, some portion of the population, even those that may not be in the uh, most affected cohort of people that that, that uh, you know might have significant health impacts as a result of COVID, um, those people are not necessarily anxious to return, you know, to uh, venues or situations where they're going to be around a lot of people. So the psychology um, that you have right now, from a public health perspective, has been greatly impacted. And it's followed a pattern that we've had in this country. I talk about this in my nonfiction books, which is 
you know, we've gone from um, a society, and again, from a global perspective, where we had harmony, but it's it's turned towards disharmony. It's turned towards um, distrust. It's turned towards um, the lack of, you know, uh, being able to have public discourse. And, you know, you can blame different people in the media or, you know, our, our president for that. But this is really a trend that's been going on. And I, I've, I've gone to great pains to emphasize this. It's been going on for quite a while. We're seeing just other manifestations of that. Eventually, you know, this leads into a larger crisis that, you know, gets resolved. And, you know, we're, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, the, the, the pattern that we've been going on uh, through right now, I could argue probably the last 20 years, maybe 25 years, uh, we're, we're, we've we're going through a crisis. It's taken a long time to play out. We've seen it manifest uh, socially, certainly right now, uh, financially, politically, and those things will continue to occur until there's a resolution. I always try to thank somebody on the uh, left side of the political aisle when we have a disagreement and we can talk civilly about it. Uh, I, I always try to thank them for being civil. I, I think that is one of the keys of, of getting past and the divide that's in our country. And I was going to say, um, regarding you know the businesses, you've also got the fact that we've added what is it four trillion dollars to the national debt now. That that's 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 like thirty thousand dollars per taxpaying household. I mean, yeah, like you said, you know the the theory that uh, debt doesn't matter. Well, it does matter at some point. And if you don't believe that, why don't you go look at Greece over the last couple of decades? Yeah, I will tell you that, you know, again, we, we're operating with, a, let's say, with a different checkbook than almost any other country in the world. Again, because we've, we've been we were granted that status of a world reserve currency. Um, the other thing that we have working in our favor is that there's a lot of debt around the world that is denominated in U.S. dollars, which is at risk. Um, and that those debts need to be paid off, which actually causes, uh, you know, perversely, it causes more of a demand for dollars. And, you know, you'll you actually do have around the world a, a dollar shortage uh, that exists. Um, the the monetary authorities, of the United States have been working uh, feverishly. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, you've got this furnace burning and it's and the 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 fire is getting smaller and smaller. That's called deflation, by the way. The the monetary authorities, I call them the wizards in my nonfiction book. Uh, they're shoveling money as quickly as they can to keep that fire going. It's called inflation. Um, so you have that balance that they've been trying to achieve. Uh, and in this past you know this past spring, you just mentioned four trillion dollars that got added. What I tell people is, imagine after two thousand eight. If the monetary authorities, not just the United States, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve, but you know Bank of Japan, uh, Bank of England, uh, uh, European Central Bank, um, any of these any of these entities that created money that didn't exist before, that's money that if if it were not in the economy, you would have seen a massive massive amount of deflation and a collapse uh, in the value of a lot of, of financial assets, and that's really what you saw this past spring. What's different now, Peter? And I, and I wrote about this in an article uh, about two, two and a half years ago. Um, the, and the title of the article was called The Next President, where I was not predicting who the next president was going to be by name, but I predicted what that next president would sound like. And I also said that it didn't matter whether a Republican got elected or a Democrat got elected. Um, and I would tell you that that prediction has, has actually come to, to, to fruition earlier than I thought. 
because in this past spring, as you just mentioned, you, you mentioned the figure of four trillion dollars. It may be more than that. I mean, the deficit this year may may increase to five or more trillion dollars. But my point is, is that you know we've taken a, a very let's say progressive approach, you know, towards rescuing the economy, and you know that approach was one that I predicted would would this this was the 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 tilt of the country. I saw that very very clearly in the 2016 election when. Really, the two people, had it not been for you know Democratic Party shenanigans, it would have been Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump in, in the final runoff. Um, I'm not sure who wins that election, to be totally honest with you. But regardless of who wins that election, I saw the tilt that the country was taking. And so, what happened this past spring with the creation of all you know of this extra deficit spending uh, was very, very consistent with what I talked about, you know, in 2016 election, uh, 2016 election, what I wrote about a couple of years ago, which is here's the tilt of the country. It won't matter who's in office. This is going to happen regardless. All right, Jim, we didn't get to anything that I had intended to talk about, but that's okay. This has been, this has <laughs> been a great conversation. Uh, we've got uh, just over a minute left. So why don't you take that minute to tell everybody how we can find more about Jim Mascara? Well, um, I would direct most people probably to my author site, which is jimmoscara.com. That's J-I-M-M-O-S-Q-U-E-R-A.com. There you'll find uh, stuff that I've written. Um, There's other links there to articles that I've posted on uh, investor sites like Seeking Alpha. There's another one called Talk Market. And I've published articles, you know, in in different medium. But uh, Seeking Alpha seems to be uh, a real popular site these days. Talk Markets does as well. And I put a lot of, you know, financial type articles and economic articles in there as well. All right. Well, that's our time. Thanks very much for being here, Jim. Uh, Until next time, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse podcast. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com to download Peter's free ebook from the file share page. And don't forget to call 64-MY-RIGHTS to leave comments for the show. That's 646-974-4487. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about Liberty Lighthouse. And wherever you listen, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated.